Good morning, saints in Christ. It's great to see everyone here today. As you know, we finished 1 John. Now we're going to 2 John. And the good news is it won't be near as long as 1 John. Matter of fact, we're going to have one message on 2 John. So if you'll turn to 2 John. 2 John talks about love and truth. We live in a world in which those two terms are confused uh, and misdefined. In our world, truth is what each person believes is right. And people can have completely diverging views of truth, and they can both be right. And everything is good. That's called relativism. Love is tolerance in our world. If someone has a crazy view, as long as we accept them for that view and we let them hold that view and we don't disagree with that view, then we are being loving. The Apostle John understands love and truth differently. On Jesus' last night before his crucifixion, he made some very profound statements. Everything Jesus said was profound. But that night, in John fourteen six, he says, I, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He declared himself to be truth. If you want to know what love is, I'm love. If you want to know what truth is, I'm truth. If you want to know the way, I'm the way. If you want to know what life is, I'm life. What an incredible declaration. A declaration that our postmodern culture can't handle. Jesus is exclusive. He is the only way. That flies in the face of relativism. It says if you don't believe in Jesus, you're wrong. Your God, if it's not Jesus, is a false God. Our culture is not wired for exclusivity of one way. And we're going to find that out, aren't we, as we talk to people. And we proclaim Christ as the only way. Also, Jesus said in John thirteen thirty five, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. The Christian community is known for two things, truth and love. And there is no conflict between those. They're both very much under attack in our world today. Blaise Pascal, who lived from 1623 to 1662, was a great Christian philosopher and mathematician. And this is what he said in his day. This is back in the 1600s. Truth is so obscure in its own time and falsehood, so established that unless we love the truth, we cannot know it. Truth is elusive. And in our culture, truth is, is, is clouded and it's confusing. And we desperately need a clear word about what the truth is. John, in his letter, tries to clarify what love is, and he calls us to love the truth, to live the truth, and to guard the truth. And his letter is very applicable for today and the day in which we live. He warns of antichrists, people who come with a false message, he did this also in 1 John. There were people coming who were false teachers. And he warned the flock to be careful of them. They didn't love the saints. They didn't obey the commands of scripture. And they had a wrong view of who Jesus was. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we talk about the Bible talks about the lawless one who will come in the end, an antichrist who will um, go against the Christ. And these false teachers were 
little antichrists who were opposing Christ and who he was. Second John is the second shortest book in the Bible. It has only 245 Greek words. I don't know if John was in a hurry, had to get this letter off quickly. What the situation was, it's the second shortest letter. And next week we'll deal with third John, which is the shortest letter. It's only, I think, 215 words in Greek. As we look at this short book, 13 verses, we see in verses 1 through 4, truth occurs five times. The word love in verses 1 through 6 occurs four times. The word walk, or another way of saying it is obeying the commands of God, is three times. And teaching in verses 9 and 10 is three times. There are three commands in this short letter. One is to continue to love each other as our Lord commanded from the beginning. So God's command to love each other has not been negated. Continue to love each other. Second, to be on the alert for false teachers. And the third command is to reject false teachers. Not just to be aware they're there, but to reject them. There are also four contrasts in this short letter. We see those who walk in truth and those who deny it. We see those who walk in the teaching. And we see those who go beyond the teaching. We see deeds worthy of full reward from some, and we see wicked works, which will have their own reward. We see those who reject the Antichrist, and we see those who receive the Antichrist or the false teachers. The thesis of this letter is we are called to walk in the commandments of Christ as we love the truth of his teaching. The emphasis of this book is to love truth. As we've said, our culture has a different definition of truth. And love is being tolerant. We're tolerant of a lot of things now, aren't we? We're tolerant of immorality. We're tolerant of homosexuality. We're tolerant of different views of marriage. We're tolerant of being able to switch your genders. We're tolerant of murder in the name of abortion. There's a lot of things in this culture that we are very tolerant of. Love is to be expressed in the context of truth. That's the problem with the culture's love. It doesn't connect with truth. It doesn't connect with moral truth. And so to obey Christ's commands means we're going to have to confront sin and call it what it is. And according to God, that is loving because God calls us to come out of sin. The culture says that's very unloving for you to confront somebody in their lifestyle or in their behavior or in anything they've done that would be considered, you would consider wrong. Ephesians 4.15 says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up every way into him who is the head into Christ. Notice truth in love. They fit together. You can't be loving if you don't have the truth. You cannot be loving if you don't have the truth. And if you have the truth, love should follow it and be part of it. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. We learn from this book that truth can be known as an objective reality. It is objective. It's not subjective. It's not a matter of what your opinion is or what their opinion is. Or It is objective. It's not subjective. He says, he says there in the first couple of verses that we would know the truth, verse 1. 
He says, the elder, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in the truth, and not only I, but also all who, what? Know the truth. It's a perfect tense. It's complete. It's something we can know. It's something that is objective. We see in the first verse, we have the elder. John calls himself the elder. He's writing to a congregation. Eusebius, who was the early church historian, believed that John wrote this after he came off the island of Patmos. In the island of Patmos, he wrote Revelation. He believes after that he wrote 2 John and 3 John. Therefore, 2 and 3 John are probably the last books that were penned for the New Testament. So he calls himself the elder, and then he talks to the elect lady. And since he doesn't define who the elect lady is, we have several interpretations. Some believe it's an actual woman and her children that John's writing this letter to. Um, John MacArthur would hold that view. Others believe it's the universal church that he's writing to. Um, And I personally hold the view that he's writing to a local church. He's writing to a local church of believers. They are the elect lady and their children are what? The members of that church. And if you look at verse 13, the scripture says, the children of your elect sister greet you. So what's he saying there? He's saying another congregation, people that I know dearly, as I write this letter to you, also send what? Their greetings as well. So the elect lady is a church and her children are the members. Notice he says, whom I love in truth. John truly loved the church. That's clear as he's written these letters. There's an incredible love for the church and there's a love for the truth. Do we love the church? Do we love the truth? In our culture, love for the church has waned. The church is one of the many things that we do on our calendar. And we may or may not check the box of getting with the church on a regular basis. But for John, it was important. Paul said, do not give up mean, or the writer of Hebrews says, do not meet, give up mean together as some are in the habit of doing. But gather regularly that you might not be tempted by the deceitfulness of sin. The Christian culture sometimes can take or leave church or create other institutions that take the place of church. For John, he loved the church. He loved it in truth, which means he loved it according to what God said it should be and what it should do. And not only I, but all those who know the truth. If you know the truth, you love those who have the truth. Because of the truth that abides in us, And will be with us forever. Because we're believers, we have the truth that abides in us. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the word of God to read and to understand. And we're promised this incredible thing that it will be with us, what? Forever. It is eternal. So he makes three, he gives us three charges here in 2 John. He says, first, we must love the truth. Let's look at that. The church is the elect. Why does he say elect? Because God chose us before the foundations of the world. We were chosen by him. We didn't choose him first. He chose us first. And then as he chose us, we did what? We chose to follow him. By the grace that he gave us. Being chosen is very special. For all of us here who are married, we know what it is for somebody to choose to spend the rest of their life with us. 
It's pretty special, isn't it? It's pretty amazing. When you think about who you are and the stuff you bring to the table, that someone would choose to spend the rest of their life with you. It's very special. And as special as that is with two sinners who agree to live together and love each other the rest of their life, it's even more amazing that the perfect God of the universe would choose us to be with him forever. So love is chosen. To maintain a healthy and growing community, the church must exhibit a fidelity to the truth that knows no compromise, and they must love one another in a way that knows no other boundaries. We can't love properly unless we love the truth. And John says, I love the truth, and you need to love the truth so that you can truly be loving. Secondly, we must live the truth. Now, sometimes we, we love the truth and we love to hear the truth and we love to hear the sermons and we love to hear great preaching. The, but, the, but it doesn't stop there. With just loving the truth, we have to what? Live the truth. In verse 4 through 6, he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Walking is another word that John uses, that Paul uses for what? Living the truth. Just hearing the truth is not enough. We are called to walk it. We're to hear it first and to love it, to embrace it, and then to what? To practice it. Just as we were commanded by the Father. So walking in truth is not an option. It's commanded by who? The Father. Verse 5, And now I ask you, dear lady... Not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. John's not giving us something new. He's giving us something old. Love one another. The false teachers had something new and exciting and special. You've never heard this teaching before. That's right. You've never heard it before because what? It's false. John says, I don't have anything new for you. I have something what? Old for you. Love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning so that we should walk in it. Notice how he defines love. Love is walking according to God's commandments. That is love. What are the commandments for? The commandments show us how to live like God. And it shows us what love is. And there are commandments to obey. And there are commandments where we need to admonish each other and correct each other and rebuke each other and exhort each other and carry each other's burdens. There's a whole list of 31 another's in the Bible that he tells us to do. And some of them are not easy to do. And some of them are painful. No one likes confronting a brother in sin, but that's what? Love. That's love. Because God confronted us in our sin, didn't he? He stopped us dead in our tracks and showed us how sinful we were and how we needed Christ. And he brought us to a place of repentance and faith. But it's more than talking it. It's living it. Now, we all get pretty good at talking it, don't we? I love when I'm talking it and someone in my family says, but dad, boop, there's a contradiction. You were saying this, but what about this right here? Don't you just love that, dads? Moms? Vance Havner, who was a North Carolina evangelist and preacher, said, what we live is what we really believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. May God give us grace to have more living 
And let's what? Just talk. We're all in progress there, aren't we? Between living it and talking about living it and not getting it done. Jonathan Edwards said a different way. The informing of the understanding is all vain. Any farther than it affects the heart, which is the same thing, has influence on the affections. If what you've learned doesn't affect your heart, and it doesn't affect your affections and your action, whatever part of that understanding does not affect the heart and affections is useless. Truth should grip our head, our heart, and our hands. Let's turn to Philippians 4.8. So if I don't hear the pages turning, I'm assuming we all have our technological Bible out, right? Notice what Paul says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Then listen to what he says. Verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. He didn't go, great job. Good job. You listened. You learned. You saw me do some things. Super. That's all you have to do. He says what? Practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Loving the truth must lead to what? Living the truth. There are four sources of authority. In our lives. One is we, what we think. Or our reason. That becomes an authority for us. Or what we've always done. Tradition. A lot of us do stuff just because we've always done it, right? We follow the tradition. The Pharisees and Sadducees were big on the traditions. They were very upset with Jesus breaking their traditions that they had established. Or what we feel. I just think this is right. I just feel like this is the right thing to do. Therefore, that's my authority to go do it. So reason, tradition, experience. But I want you to notice what John says. His authority is what God says. Revelation. Verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment just as you have heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. You and I, our authority is revealed. We operate off of revealed authority. This Bible is revealed from God. And it claims to have authority over every person in the universe. This is our authority. We may use our reason to understand it, but it is clear, it is objective truth. Our world functions according to reason or what's always been done or experience. This is why there's a clash. Wrong thinking always leads to wrong living. That's what biblical counseling is all about, isn't it? It's talking to somebody and finding out what they believe that just isn't so. And helping them replace it with what is so. And then causing them to live according to what is so and not what they think is so. And repenting of the 
truth, the false, the falseness of what they believe and the actions that it produces. So we must live the truth. We must love the truth. We must live the truth. Finally, verse 7 through 11, we must guard the truth. And this one is slippery. Verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world. Those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. John says there's many people out there who are deceivers. Who don't acknowledge that Jesus came in the flesh. And this was kind of the primary teaching of the Gnostics was the flesh is wicked. Therefore, Jesus really wasn't God and he didn't come in the flesh. It may have appeared like he did, but he really didn't. Or as we learn from Serenthus, that he was born a man and the, the, the divinity came upon him at baptism. And then just before he died on the cross, the divinity left him because it's impossible for God to die. Notice there are many deceivers. Deception. It's not always easy to tell false teaching. If it were, nobody would be deceived, right? So how do we guard the truth? First step is we must understand false teaching is deceptive. Have you ever been deceived by something you believe you believe for years was true about something in the Christian life and then you found out later it wasn't and you'd built part of your life upon it? See, false teachers are pretty slick. They use the Bible to back up what they're saying. For a large majority of Christians in the, in the world... All somebody has to do is pull their Bible out and quote a verse and we go, oh, oh, well, that's, that's it. It's true. Just quoting a scripture and it completely disarms, I would say 70% or more of believers. If you can quote a scripture to back up what you just said, game's over. They're ready to follow you to the end of the earth. And the more scriptures you quote, wow, well, we've really got to follow you because you've got all these, and you memorized them too. Well, shoot, if you've memorized them, then you, wow. We live in a very gullible age because in our churches we've not taught sound doctrine. Because remember, how do we get churches to be so big? Let's go back a ways. People didn't like the gospel where people were told they were sinners and rebellion against God. And that they had to submit their lives to Jesus and follow him. So what did we do? We had to tweak the gospel. Basically, mar it beyond recognition. And we didn't need to talk about sin. And we didn't need to talk about um, turning away from our sin and going toward righteousness. And we just needed to promise them that God was going to bless their life. And all they had to do was what? Pray a prayer, right? You pray the prayer and you're in. If you decide later to follow Jesus and really be a serious committed Christian, you can be. But just because you prayed the prayer, you are good to go. What did that do? It filled up the churches. So we have churches full of people who've never dealt with their sin and who don't understand the doctrine of who they are and don't understand the doctrine of God's holiness. So if they don't understand those doctrines, they're open to anything that can be taught or said. And many in our culture who name the name of Jesus will at some point embrace homosexual marriage. Or changing our genders. Or you name it. Because once it becomes popular enough. 
there's really no moorings of solid doctrine to hold them in place. So false teachers use the Bible. That's not playing fair, is it? And they use it really well. Just, have you ever had a Jehovah Witness or a Mormon show up at the door? They, they know the scripture. They don't know it very well, but they have their key verses and they're very passionate about it. And if we're not rock solid in our understanding, we're going, wow, that sounded pretty logical. The false teachers are little antichrists. Let's go ahead and look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. They are a foreshadowing of one to come. In the end, there will come a man. The man of lawlessness. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him... This is verse 1 of chapter 2 of 2 Thessalonians. We ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? So... Paul was warning him, there's false teaching and one of that will be the false teacher of all false teachers. And you know what is restraining him now so that he may not be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until his, he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So this antichrist, this false teacher will meet his end when? When who shows up? When Jesus shows up and speaks a word and he is gone. We're going to be there for that, guys. Isn't that going to be amazing? The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. And why are these people susceptible to deception and are perishing? Notice what it says. Because they refused to love what the truth they refuse to love the truth about Jesus they refuse to love the truth about God they refuse to love the truth about their sinfulness they refuse to love God's word and so instead of believing the truth they believe the what a lie and so be saved Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe what? The truth. But had pleasure in falseness? No, what does it say? Unrighteousness. Why do we believe falseness? Because it's a cover for our what? Unrighteousness. There's always a moral 
thing we want to do. And so we, we have to not believe in God or believe something weird about God in order for us to be able to do this thing. So these people will face, they will be swept in by the Antichrist because they didn't believe the truth. There are stadiums full of people on Sunday listening to people who don't have the truth. I mean, athletic stadiums full of people who have a happy message about life. There is no clear sound doctrine, but it's tickling their ears and they love to hear it. And if that person falls and the next person comes to power, they'll follow them too. Because they'll love any message except what? The message of what? Truth. Truth. So that's a future event that's going to happen. The man of lawlessness will show up. Until that time, we have false teachers who have the spirit of what? Antichrist. Who reject Jesus and try to lead as many people away from him as they can. And that's why John is very concerned and very urgent in this letter that they know how to stand against false teaching. There are different degrees of false teaching. There's teaching regarding marriage that's false. And leading some people into divorce when they shouldn't divorce but should hang in there with their spouse. There is false teaching about how to be holy. We saw that in Colossians. Remember, do not handle, do not taste, do not what? Touch. How do you how do you become holy? You just don't do this and 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 don't do this. And Paul said, What? That has no value in restraining the sensual indulgence. Does that affect your life? It sure does. Because it affects your sanctification. There's false teaching on child training in which we are so concerned about the child making sure they say yes, sir, and no, sir, but we're not concerned about their heart issue or the sin within their heart. As long as we get outward compliance, we're good because the reality is we just want our kids to be great showpieces for our great parenting. And they always disappoint us in the most public of arenas. Does that affect? It sure can. It can affect children's lives. There's false teaching regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ. We've already talked about. Now, there's all kinds of false teaching. And it will have an effect on us. To a degree. And you know what? It can happen really very, very innocently in which we feel really passionate about something to the point we make it kind of a law and then the next thing you know it becomes more and more important I got a call probably a month ago from a pastor and he was urged by some of his members to give me a call And he explained the situation to me and he is a lone elder and he wants to raise up other elders. And so he began to put down the qualifications of what these men had to be. Okay. Sounds good. Seems like the Bible probably said something about that somewhere, didn't it? Like Titus one and first Timothy three. So he decided that only homeschooling Men could be elders. Um, He decided that only men who were not in debt could be elders. Sounds pretty good. Uh, And then he had some other requirements that were not found in the scriptures. To which it sounded a little alarm in some men's heads going, whoa, 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 what? Why are we creating standards beyond what? The scripture. What could be the problem of having all homeschool people as elders? 
We're going to have much of an outreach to non-homeschool people. Could we become very much inward focused? Yeah. What about the whole debt deal? I, I know you don't want the building to go into debt, but couldn't you just find somebody who, who didn't think that, you know, a lot of debt was bad? So we, he, had, he had several criteria there that were not in there. It, it starts off very innocently. You know, in the family integrated circle, and I, you know, I've been a public school teacher, so I, I know what goes on there. And it's not all good. And there, there's been a push in some areas to where we tell everybody to get out of the public schools. Children and what? Adults. So I can understand the rationale behind that. The question is, if all Christians leave the public schools, where is the light of the gospel? Or if no one should be involved in government work because the government is evil, who is going to be a light there? So great intentions, great plan to, to be holy and righteous, but is it biblical? And sometimes we can just, with something extreme, and go, praise God, that's great, without asking the question, where is it in here? I mean, here we have Daniel. Where was Daniel? He was in Babylon. Was that a godly place where they loved Jesus? No. Pagan to the root, pagan to the bone. They even gave him a name, a pagan God's name. And what did Daniel do? He stood in the midst of the courts and he shone like a bright light. How about Joseph? Where did God send Joseph? To Egypt. Well, weren't they a Christian nation? No, they weren't. All those plagues were against every one of their gods. They had gods everywhere. And yet Joseph was there second in command of Pharaoh. Did he wash out? No. He was faithful to the Lord. So sometimes teachings can be very um, well-meaning. And this is where false teaching really is difficult when it comes from a, a brother or sister who has taken it and they think it's great and they share it with you. There's a, there's a poison called Amdro, right? You pour it around the ant pile and the workers take the, take the Amdro and they take it back in and they feed it to the queen and she what? Dies. So we need to be careful about false teaching because it, it, it affects our effectiveness for the kingdom. It affects our joy in Jesus. It affects a lot of those things. Does it send our soul to hell? No, it doesn't. Because we what? Know him. Look at verse 8 and verse 9 of 1 John. I'm sorry, 2 John. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for. Who's the we? The leadership, John, the elders, the apostles. But may win a full reward. So what's the emphasis here? Watch yourself. We have entrusted you with sound doctrine so that you'll have a what? Full reward. If you buy into stuff that's false... You're going to get less than a what? Full reward. You'll still be saved, but you're going to get less than what you could have had because you bought into something that led you down a path that made your Christian life futile. Look at verse 9. Everyone who goes ahead and does not abide in the teaching. So this other person, hey, bought into some kind of teaching where they may not get a full reward, that's his concern. There's other people who've gone beyond the gospel. 
And they no longer abide in the teaching of Christ. And what does he say about them? They do not have God. These were the false teachers. False teaching in some areas can damage your effectiveness. False teaching regarding the person and work of Jesus can damn your soul to hell. It is serious business what we do with the gospel of Jesus. That's why when we start trying to play with the gospel so we can get bigger crowds, if we change the gospel, even though we're super zealous and quote love Jesus, we are helping multiply what? False converts. This is serious, serious stuff. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes, and if you don't, if anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching. So, so nine, if you, have, if you don't have this teaching, you don't have God. If you do, you have the Father and the Son. You know, it's funny. I work with College Plus and I deal with a lot of people who are making a big decision about college. And some of them, everything I say is gold. They think it's wonderful and they cannot wait to sign their student up. There's others who want to read every last thing we wrote about everything. And they want to read the agreement. And they want to ask me the questions two or three times. They are cautious buyers. Why are they that way? Some of it's just temperament. Some of it is because they have this event in their past where they quickly made a decision and didn't read the fine print and got burned, right? As believers, we need to become so acquainted with this book that we are, and we are that meticulous about it. Number one, because it affects our soul. Number two, if it doesn't affect our soul, it can affect what? Our effectiveness for the kingdom. Okay? The Pharisees were great at adding laws to God's law. And they added so many laws to God's law that when the Messiah came, he didn't meet their law. And they rejected him. And caused the nation to reject him. To the point in Romans 11, the Bible says they were cut off from salvation for a while. So we need to be careful with false teaching. How does this apply to us? First of all, it applies to us as elders here at the church. Elders who watch over the flock of God. It is important to watch over the doctrine of the church. And to be careful who comes in, around, and among us. And what they teach. Titus 1.9 says, this is in the qualifications for elder. He says, this person who's a candidate must be able to hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict. Sound doctrine is important. It really is important. And unfortunately, in our Christian culture, some people will say, well, you know, if I have to choose between sound doctrine and love, I'm going to choose love. John didn't know that was an option. John said, I choose both. Sound doctrine and what? Love. And some people will say, well, if I, you know, I've met people who, you know, they got into sound doctrine and they became unloving. Well, that's their sin problem, right? It's called pride. But for John, there is no dichotomy between love and sound doctrine. You can't really love people unless you what? Know the truth, Right? And if you know the truth, that should humble you 
And you should be a very loving person. Remember Acts 20, 26 through 30. Let's turn there real quickly. Paul is on the shore there. He's talking to the Ephesian elders. And he says this. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all of you. What does he mean by that? I told you the truth. I preached to you the truth of the word of God. Therefore, your blood is on what? Your own heads. Because I was faithful to proclaim the truth to you. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I told you the, I told you the easy stuff. I told you the hard stuff. I told you the difficult stuff. I taught you all of it. That was my responsibility. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Who's the church? Blood-bought saints. Jesus shed his blood for you. Therefore, you are what? Precious. Precious. And need to be what? Guarded. That's the purpose of elders, is to guard the flock. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. That's false what? Teachers. And, listen to this, from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Sound doctrine serious. Paul's admonition to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 16. <clears throat> Keep a close watch on yourself, he says. What else? And on the teaching. Timothy needs to watch two things, his life and his what? Teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and and your what? Hearers. Sound doctrine is a matter of life and death. Spiritual life, spiritual death. So elders need to be responsible. Not only elders, how about fathers and mothers? You need to give watch to protect your children from false teaching. The most important step in doing that is to find a church where God's word is faithfully taught, making sound doctrine available to them. But they love going to this place because the youth group is just fantastic. That's not the first order of business when choosing a church. The first order of business is, do they rightly handle the word of truth? If they don't, Go somewhere where they do. Three, individually, we have a responsibility to be Bereans. And all of us can be better Bereans than we are. Acts 17, 11. Luke writes, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. What did they do? Why were they more noble? They received the word with all eagerness. Does it stop there? They were just eager to hear the word? Nope. Examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Eager to hear the word and then what? Compare what they heard with what? The scripture. They, and those were, these were, these were unbelieving. These were unbelievers. These were Jews who were not believers who were examining the scriptures to make sure because they knew that the truth was where? Here. And whatever you said has to line up here. So many times we just hear something, oh, that sounds good. Let's move forward. Let's charge ahead.
Also, how to be guard. We must be careful not to encourage false teachers. Verses 10 and 11. You have to understand something. In these days, there were inns where people came and stayed. They were kind of a seedy place. Most people didn't want to stay in the inns. But these traveling evangelists, these traveling teachers would come to your area and you would put them up. To have them stay with you was not just providing food and lodging. It was also to take away the status of suspicious. If if a traveling person came through town and Bob says, hey, come spend the night in my house. Everybody goes, wow, that guy must be okay. What he's teaching must be all right. Must be good to go. Or they came to stay at my house. Well, because Pastor Paul took them in their home, they must be good to go. Or he wouldn't have had them come in. In verse 10 11 of 2 John. We read the following. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, what teaching? Sound doctrine. Do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Treating false teachers as brothers and welcome them with the right hand of fellowship. You participate in their wickedness. This is why there was quite a little stir not too long ago when Piper, John Piper, invited Rick Warren to come and speak at his conference. There's a question with Rick of doctrine, of sound doctrine regarding the gospel. And John got no little thike from associating himself with this person. There have been ministers in the past who have given praise to Robert Schuler. Robert Schuler doesn't even understand the gospel. So we have to be careful that we don't promote false teachers by welcoming them in. Now, how do we handle the Jehovah Witness and the Mormon who come to our door? Number one, we need to understand this. We better be armed to the teeth with truth if we're going to deal with them, if we invite them into our home to have a conversation. Number two, we don't invite them into our home if we do. If we do, we don't invite them in as a brother or sister. We don't say, God bless you and your work. We have the purpose of what? Proclaiming the gospel to them without compromise. In most cases, if you're pretty clear on the gospel and what you believe and you're strong about it, they're not going to want to come in your house. But if you do invite people in who have false teaching, you must come from a position of teaching them, not endorsing them or supporting them in any way. And really giving them an admonition, you need to stop teaching this because you're gathering souls for hell. It's what you're doing. So we don't need to support those things. John Stott says, if John's instruction seems harsh, it's perhaps because his concern for the glory of the Son and the good of men's souls is greater than ours and because the tolerance on which we pride ourselves is in reality an indifference to truth. Finally, he wraps up. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our our joy may be complete. How do we ward off false teaching? We stick with a community of believers and are faithful in that. A couple of quick things to help you strengthen your doctrine. Fredericksburg Christian Fellowship adheres to the 1689 Confession. If you've not read it, it will be worth reading it and studying it. 
It's a good, concise understanding of doctrine. Or take Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. It's 600 pages. You don't have to read it all in one night. You can just chop it down in little bits and pieces. But read through that so that you understand doctrine. Or Calvin's Institutes. We all have a responsibility to love, to love and to love the truth. May God give us grace as we do that. Father, we come before you. And it's amazing this short little letter for all it has in it. And it's amazing the passion that John has for truth and love. And he loves these people in this church. And he wants them to build their life on sound doctrine. Father, I pray that you would help us be more Berean as the days move forward. That we would be careful to sift through the teaching that we receive from the leaders here and from everyone. That we would take our responsibility for sound doctrine seriously. Father, that we would not support people who teach sound doctrine. And Lord, that we would realize that even taking in milder versions of false teaching affects our effectiveness for you. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.